It's how you create change, not the change itself that's the problem. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Agan Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. April Niels, engineer by training, over 13 years in a military Navy shipyard, and author of a book, Everyone is a Change Agent, a guide to change agent essentials. In her whole career, she did a lot of voluntary jobs, mostly in leading roles. And today she is a director of IT transformation in the office of the chief information officer at Intel. Sounds like a very strong woman in the most positive way. April, it's so awesome to have you with us today. Awesome. Thank you, Aga. Thanks for having me. When you started your career, you worked as a nuclear engineer, right? Yeah, for the U.S. Navy up at the shipyard in Bremerton, Washington. Then you relatively quickly went from nuclear engineering to command strategic planning manager. So my path was one of trying to solve the problems that I saw right in front of me. So an engineer is often given a problem to solve, but as you mature in your career, you start to see problems that aren't necessarily assigned to you. So I started working on sequencing of work and improving on-time delivery of projects and programs. And that led me into a curiosity of how do you actually lead large organizations so the organizations can solve bigger and bigger problems. From there, I became a project manager and then a program manager. Then I was noticed by the leadership for my ability to pull people together to a common vision. So they gave me the challenge of being the strategic planning manager, a job that had been vacant for 10 years before I was assigned to it. So the hope was I could pull folks together to a common conversation around what we were going to do. And we did issue the first strategic plan in 10 years when I was in that job. How did you manage to convince all the people to sign in under your vision? Or was it the joint vision? So it was a mixture of tenacity, useful enthusiasm for the role, and a willingness to partner with people so that their vision was part of our vision. People want to enroll in something they can see themselves as part of. So I structured it in a way where it wasn't here's the vision we're giving you, sign up or else. It was, here's the vision we're constructing together. And that helped pull people together. Challenging organizations, this is a big thing because organizations generally don't want to change. How can you challenge status quo today? I find that a lot of organizations say they want change, but what they think that means is everyone else changing while I stay the same. So the true power is when, whether it's an employee or a leader, says, I want this change and I'm willing to go first. That's what I call driving change. And when the leader is willing to challenge their thinking and their behaviors and their day-to-day role modeling for that different status quo, you see amazing things happen very, very quickly. Often the organizations don't really see that they are stuck in the status quo. They genuinely believe that they keep on developing while when you look at them from the outside, they are completely stuck. How do you make them aware? I've called it an organizational time warp. Think of the physics and the notions of time. When you get big enough as an organization, you get a gravity all of your own. Your processes and your methods and how long it takes you to do something become, in many people's minds, just the way it is. So the opportunity is really that space travel to other status quos. We read a lot of sci-fi in this world, right? Sci-fi fiction about visiting other planets. But I think you can get an equal experience by visiting another organization and just asking them, how do you do certain things that I do day to day in my work? 
I can remember switching organizations and going from one where you had to sign up in a paper planner for a video conference line, actually physically walk to someone's desk and put your name down on a piece of paper so that you could reserve your time slot to an organization where to have a video conference, you pushed a button in your email. And that felt like rocketing into the future for me. There's a lot of examples of that in many organizations where if they just looked at how do others do this, they'd feel like they were a time traveler. Often, though, many managers, especially those who are successful, they strongly believe that their way is the best way because they already had a success. And they are very difficult to convince that there might be a different way. Is there a trick to it? If you're an employee, I think the trick is tying your solution to something that they're going after and being very explicit about it, right? We're trying to launch this product in quarter when it used to take us a year to do it. In order to do that, this step has to speed up. And here's a solution which actually cuts this much time out of that. And here's what I'm willing to do to make that happen. If they say no in that situation, when you've laid it out with all that detail, it gives you an indication that they're leaders in name only. Because if they're not willing to help clear or at least part the obstacles to achieve their vision, they're not leading, they're just speaking. Mm. Or they just don't want to change. They are very comfortable yeah. where they are. And that's the myth of change, right? Other people can change and I can get the outcome and I've never seen it. If you don't know who the anchor is that's slowing down your change, it's you. <laughs> oh, I see so many good quotes from this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> April, you said that uh, you were working on a 10-year plan at the shipyard. 10 year? Like, you know, in the world of complexity and the speed, how can you make a plan of 10 years? Well, we're dealing in shipyard with platforms that are going to have 40 to 60 year lives. So what we're going to work on is actually relatively fixed. When you have one customer and a single focus and a specific purpose that you're created for and a fixed market, we're required to do a certain amount of work. It brings stability amidst the complexity is what I would say. So there's, there's a lot you do know. And that allows you to then focus on what you don't versus in a disruptive market in many other industries where what your product mix is going to be and who your customer base is going to be and what your competition landscape is going to be is changing continuously. It's just a very different industry. On the other hand, I have an impression that a lot of companies being in a disruptive market, they find the fact that the market goes so fast an excuse not to plan, just keep on going. What do you think about it? I think there's a probably a sweet spot in the middle. I had a mentor once that said he was dogmatically rigid, that he would always be flexible. And I think there's some aspects of trying to balance those two things out that are really key. How can we plan to be as adaptable as possible is the challenge today versus how can we plan and rigidly hold to it or how can we not plan and just sort of ride the wave dogmatically planning to be as agile as possible. I know other friends mm -hmm. of ours would love to have deep decade-long conversations around complex planning, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess they do. <laughs> I think it definitely in these days takes a lot of understanding of complexity theory and organizational dynamics and the basic business mechanisms, whether it's innovator's dilemma, some of the modern challenges of how to structure things. In the end, it is that mix of people skills and the hard knowledge. But what I've found most important is the tenacity to continue to blend them. What I find in the field of change management is, and this isn't everyone, but majorities of people either come in rigidly to the tools, they want to follow and conform to their tool set, 
and they're dogmatic about it, which is always hilarious when you're dealing with, say, agile. Dogmatic agilists always crack me up. Or they come in from, say, the HR, the human resources space, where they just want to focus on the people to the point where it becomes more psychotherapy than change management. Let me manage your feelings, which no one should try to manage someone else's feelings. I try to come into it from the middle, which is how do you blend the best of everything for the situation in front of you, for the people in front of you? You need both a custom diagnosis and a custom dose. It's more naturopathy than drugstore medicine, maybe. And then you have to be able to rigidly plan to stay flexible. (laughs) (laughs) I believe they call that the liminal space, right? The space between everything. In any organization, you can get stuck in bureaucracy. You can get stuck in the habits of the past. And the more folks know what to keep from what's good about the org and what to leave aside in order to achieve the new outcomes, the better you have in the organization. And that's why I've been toying with stuff around how do you actually trust people to experiment and implement on their own versus constantly requiring them to bring you conclusions and recommendations and get permission to move. Because the delay between the idea and permission is usually the market window. So I've rolled out some stuff around a trust framework, leveraging David Marquet's work with the Ladder of Leadership and my change agent essentials to help people through How do I actually partner with somebody in an organization and make sense of how much can I allow this person to be that human center and and adapt the system on their own? Do they have the technical expertise? Do they have the business acumen? And do they have the change confidence so that they become a positive agent for organizational adaption versus a person out running amok and messing up the system through their own best efforts? I think we are landing close to what's in your book. Shall we explore that a little bit? Who is the book for? So I'm uh, at this moment in a big bank, which decided to make digital transformation, whatever that means. They have a specific idea where they want to change and uh, in what way, but still it takes people to do this. So if I take your book, what do I get from this? So what an organization going through a digital transformation gets from the book is a way of explaining to each and every employee how they have a role to play in helping the transformation go forward and a set of specific tools that they can implement regardless of if their boss is ahead of them on the change curve. Now, I've read a lot of different things in the industry around leadership and change. What I found that frustrated me was that almost all books were written assuming you were the CEO or would become the CEO. And I started to think about how sad that was because so few people will become a CEO. So we were children and only few of us got to be adults. And every book we read was about the joy of being an adult. We would see how depressing it was to suggest to people these futures that very few got to attain because not through their own effort, but having to be picked. So in response to the fact that we need to be ready to change and equipped to change in order to meet the challenges of this digital future, I wrote the book for everyone so that our moms and dads who maybe are you know, retiring and looking for their next step, our new college graduates who are struggling to figure out how to take what they've learned and actually apply it in organizations that usually want them there but not there for ideas, and those of us in the middle who are struggling with the demands of both, of leadership's expectations to get different outcomes but don't touch anything, and employees' demands for getting stuff done quickly and changing everything could have a common language and a common set of tools that we can either apply one at a time or as groups. What is transformation? And by the way, is transformation good or bad or maybe neither or maybe both? I usually try to frame it in the positive sense. Now, there is loss of who you previously were and there's different folks who grieve that in different ways. 
But I like to think of it like the caterpillar to the butterfly. You're fulfilling your purpose um, by going through the transformation. There's many organizations that have provided useful purposes up until this point. And if they do not transform, we'll be unable to perform that purpose for much longer. That's, I think, the imperative around transformation in many organizations today. It's not just being clever or coming up with new gimmicks. It's really about becoming from inside out a different creature. And it's a change in mindset and a change in behavior and a change in partnership and a change in sensing and a change in activity that can't be subsumed into a program. It has to be an identity shift. It's less about pushing the accelerator and more about getting your foot off the brake. Often the major blockage to transformation is the loss of power. Like people are afraid of this a lot. Is there a way to explain to them that this is not a bad thing? I like the concepts of growth mindset or fixed mindset in this case. Too often the worry about loss of power comes from a fixed mindset. It says what is today is all there can be. So if you do growth mindset, fixed mindset, and game theory, you have to change the wager. Left to their own devices, people assume my choices are what I have now or less. We need to reframe that as what you have now or 10x of what you have now. That's really what you're betting. Because if people hold on to what they have, it will become zero very quickly. And what they're giving up is 5x, 10x of what they have, but they don't see that. And that's for those of us who do to help frame that for them. There is an opposite behavior, which is like staying in permanent transformation. So you never really arrive anywhere. You keep on transforming all the time, like reorganization after reorganization. You haven't finished one, you start another. What sort of behavior do you think it is? Well, and I think reorganization isn't actually transformation. That's where people get confused about motion equaling forward progress. If you oscillate in place, you're not actually moving forward. There's a lot of organizations that don't know the difference between oscillation and forward progress. And reorganization a lot of times is an indicator that you're chasing something emergent and dynamic with static structure. So when I worked with John Cotter many years ago, He helpfully broke apart the difference between the hierarchy, which should be set up to do known repeatable work from emergent networks, which should be crafted out of volunteers from the hierarchy to go after emergent and adaptive opportunities. I found organizations that want to go pursue a new market and they'll spend six months designing the org to pursue the new market that by the time they have the organization in place, the market opportunity is gone. So th- this is everything that uh, Christiansen describes in the innovator's dilemma, right? That the organization has a really hard time to find new ways to do emerging market activities simply because their goal is to please those who are in the middle and those who are in the middle, they don't want to change. So what should the company that likes to become more innovative do? Well, I think part of if we're going to update that book, which already, although it wasn't written that long ago, it already feels like it was written in a calmer, peacefuler time. I think part of the solution is in the design space. Change in the platform requires almost no change by the users. It's seamless. It's intuitive. So you would never think of opening a new application on your laptop and having to spend two hours instructor-led training of how to push the new button. But many organizations roll out changes to their customers and partners still that require instructor-led training on how to make sense of it. And I think that's just a design fail all the way around. So if they would embrace more of the design thinking around how do we create a better seamless experience so that we can achieve, say, our digital transformation on the platform side with it only resulting in a new intuitive user experience for our customers, your middle wouldn't fight change. 
it's how you create change, not the change itself that's the problem. When you were talking about hierarchy versus emergent network, I sensed, and maybe incorrectly, that there was permission for experimentation somewhere in there. This is another thing that's super hard for organizations. They are afraid of experimenting. Why is it so and like, how can this be changed? I think most organizations are afraid of experimenting because they haven't set boundaries on the experiment, made them safe to fail. So if you have people who are technically competent, oftentimes they don't necessarily have the business acumen to know what they're going to break with the change in the systems, in the structures, in the marketplace. So they experiment without really understanding the environment they're experimenting in, right? And then worse, what I find in most organizations is almost no one has change competence where they have studied or practiced at being better at creating change. They think, I'm a genius. I have a brilliant idea. All should bow at my new idea. And those who don't are unenlightened and Neanderthal. <laughs> and when you approach change from that way, it distances you from others, doesn't pull you close. So the more we can create holistic agents for change in organizations and have conversations as managers and employees, as uh, organizational leaders and divisions of those organizations around the space to change and the competence to change, I think experimentation flourishes. And that's what I've seen. When I ran Guiding Coalition based on Cotter's model, we created a safe place for people to change. And change became the norm within that space. And we were prolific, successful change agents because the conditions were right. The platform was right. The change buffers were in place to protect people to be different. So it's easily buildable. But you have to structure it, right? A bridge doesn't happen because you want one. You have to build it. Okay, so what I understand now about changes in an organization, it takes certain type of individuals. They need certain skills, but that's not enough. There needs to be a structure inside the organization so they can train if they haven't before or learn what it means. And only then you set them loose. I think you can be a change agent in an organization. Going back to my book, mm -hmm. you will be able to do no harm. But as you can partner with the organization to make your way of creating change the new normal, whether that's in your work group or in your division or in the whole organization, the more change will flourish. So I wouldn't have somebody wait for a structure. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's start from this angle that you mentioned. So I'm this genius that has a brilliant idea, mm -hmm. but apparently people are not appreciating the brilliance of it and they don't want to bow to it and follow me. What would be your advice to me to try, you know, to make it happen? What I find most often with visionary leaders is that they spend a lot of years hoping someone will notice their vision and give them the authority to implement it. The key is this notion of moving from driving people to driving change, where it's not about authority. It's about clearing the path to the change yourself so that others who can believe in it with you want to follow. So I always encourage those visionaries to spend less time trying to get the organization to make other people follow them and more time actually looking at what in the organization stops me and stops them from doing this change and how can I partner with people to clear the way so this becomes an easier option for people. You'll actually get more outcomes, more results, more learning faster than you would trying to get on the boss's calendar and creating PowerPoint slides, proving over and over again in your own head why it's a good idea. Take it out, have it interact with people, try and live what you're suggesting yourself and see if 
it actually can function. Too often we get enamored with our own thinking and lose what's missing mm -hmm. in our ideas. So if I would paraphrase it, it would be like implementing of that change how much you can on your own, trying living it, and then kind of organically gathering people around you to push this a little bit forward rather than going through hierarchy or established channels. You need to manage the hierarchy and the established channels, but I think it's a mix of where do you spend your time? I find too many folks spend 90% of their time managing the hierarchy and 10% with their idea. And then by the time maybe they do get the hierarchy to notice, the idea has atrophied. And you've actually soured a lot of people on it because they would have wanted to join you in it. But now that it's in order, much like, you know, I would have eaten something if you'd suggested it. But once my mother requires me to eat it, I might just say no, just out of reaction. You get a lot of that in organizations. It's not the idea I oppose. It's the way it's done to me. I've seen people who are struggling with autonomy and on-time delivery and their ability to influence their organization fight an agile implementation because it was being done to them when the tools should solve all the problems that they have. But the fact that it was ordered and compliance was measured by conformity, they lose all confidence in the method. We do a lot of that damage in organizations by forcing changes upon people that would have solved their problem, but the way we implement it upon them ruins it for them. There is this conflict between the fact that many organizations are still living the Kairatika way, and therefore, in order to have any change, you have to push it from the top to the bottom because otherwise it will never be listened to. And then the consequence that you are talking about, that once the management is convinced, okay, we should do it, they push this change and therefore people rebel against it. And on the other hand, when you try to make this change from the bottom up, there is often, especially at the beginning, not much buy-in from the organization. So therefore, you suffer and you struggle because the organization doesn't want to listen to you. How can this be approached in a different way? So I like to do it a little bit of both. While you're at the bottom getting good at what your change is, getting good at how you live it and how you communicate the value to others, you're also looking for who are those partners within the hierarchy who are willing to model the change to, who are willing to go out and help you implement it. So I tell the story of my son when he first learned to walk on his own. He has special needs. It took him a long time to learn to walk. And when he finally could walk on his own, I noticed people had one of two reactions. Either they wanted to scoop him up and walk for him because he was so sweet and so cute, which would have just hurt him and damaged him long term. Or they wanted to keep him in one place because he might hurt himself. Neither of those is a good solution, but those are very much how organizations handle change agents down in the organization. A senior leader will find somebody who has a great idea, who's trying to move it forward, and they'll go, oh, that's a great idea. I will order everybody to do your idea. And that crushes the idea versus saying something like, oh, that's a great idea. How can I be a role model for it and help clear the obstacles so everybody who wants to be like you can be like you? The other option usually from senior leaders is when they find somebody down in the organization making a change happen, they say, who told you to do that and is that your job? That's the equivalent of holding them back in place because you're too little, you're too small, you're too low in the organization to make change happen. Big people like me make changes happen. So from a senior leadership position, it's important to recognize that in order for the organization to be stronger, we need to help the people who are walking on their own walk faster. And we need to stop ourselves from stopping people who are moving from progressing or we will have exactly what we don't want, an organization that waits for us to make any change happen and is too afraid to try on their own. You're touching on a subject that 
I'm thinking about a lot these days, which is teaching senior management. Often people who end up in the boardrooms, they don't really get trained that much anymore. Let's talk about agile design thinking. They want to bring this change to the organization, but they've never tried it themselves. They don't know what they are talking about. This doesn't make sense, does it? No, it doesn't. And actually, I think you could sort organizations that have a good chance at long-term success and those who don't by the rate of learning that their leaders are adopting. Because the market is learning fast. Your competitors are learning fast. The employees at all of those organizations are learning fast. And the more we wait for somebody to tell us what to learn, the slower we'll go. Our education systems aren't training us to succeed in the actual world today because we're still teaching people to wait for teacher to ask, find out what the right answer is, and deliver the right answer instead of learning as much as we can about what is around us and what can be known as a platform to then leap from into that unknown. So I find people don't build the platform of knowledge of what can be known. And they don't leap into the unknown. And so they're stuck in the fact that the skyscrapers are built all around them. You're saying that competition is learning fast, but I don't think that they do. This is the interesting thing, especially when you are in one business and you go from one competitor to another, you suddenly see that none of them are really learning fast. You can actually split organizations into three. And even in organizations, you can use the same spread which is there are lagging practices, things everyone would look at and say, that's old, no one's doing that anymore, that's a drag on your revenue. Then there's what you could call industry standard. And in that space, there's good, better, and best. And this is usually where large-scale consultants come in, they'll evaluate you, they'll be able to tell you based on their benchmarks, what is best in class, And then there's the third camp, I think where Christian Zoom is going and where we're really seeing disruption are the folks in the leading position. And the leading position is usually on the other side of a gulf of a paradigm shift, entirely rethinking one aspect of the industry. By going through that paradigm shift, they create competitive advantage because the thinking, not the actual implementation, the thinking and the willingness to shift your thinking is the hardest part. And shifting the thinking of enough people in the senior levels so that you can live on the other side of that paradigm is the hardest part. So you could live in that leading position and invite everybody to come see you and no one will follow because copying will never get them across paradigm shift. So it becomes a sustained competitive advantage. I don't think there's many people leading on the other side of those paradigm shifts. But those who are, are disrupting their industry in ways that others cannot follow because copying will never get you there. So that's the really powerful place, I think, is to look at where are those paradigm shifts and how can I as an individual or I as an organization adopt a portfolio of them that creates sustained competitive advantage through my thinking and my behavior on the other side of that shift. It's out there, available for folks. The ideas aren't hidden. If anything, people on the other side of the paradigm shift are hungry to talk about it because they're lonely. They want people there with them. That's the fun place to play. There is, though, the other side of this coin, which is obsession with innovation. Every company right now in the world is obsessed with innovation. And again, that doesn't make sense either, does it? Innovation in the sense of it's a cool word, and when I say it, I'm cool too, is I think innovation in marketing only, because a lot of people just want to say it so they can sound cool. But innovation for innovation's sake just becomes noise, right? Not something useful to a purpose. So if organizations exist to fulfill their purpose, it should be targeted innovation, not innovation so I can seem cool. And that's, I think, probably what you're seeing is a lot of folks who just want to do hackathons because cool people do hackathons. That's not an organizationally sustainable structure. It needs to be towards a purpose versus just sparking energy out into the environment. From far away, it's like, 
I see lots of sparks, but they're not producing any revenue. They're not going to change anything. This is all activity, not meaning. That makes me sad because it sours the word for a lot of folks. They think it's just the thing you do to get the bosses to go away, not the thing you do to change the world. About changing the world. So the theme of this season is empowerment. But now when I'm listening to what you say, I don't know, I lost trust in my uh, understanding of this term. So I wanted to ask you for yours. I think too often empowerment is used as something that somebody gives to someone else. I empower you to go and solve this problem. I don't care for that because it keeps people on the notion that it wasn't inside me all along. Until you gave it to me, I didn't possess it. The whole underpinnings of my book with everyone is a change agent is the reality that you have this innate capacity. You have to choose to unleash it. So if we wanted to find empowerment from an organizational perspective as how we partner together to bring out your best self, that's much richer than how it's too often used, which is how do organizations give people something that until it's given, they don't have it. So I'd rather shift it into the, how do we unleash the power that's already in the organization versus transfer it around. I have it because I'm in leadership and you don't. So let me gift you a little bit of mine. So if we flip that coin, we could say everybody is empowered. Just, you know, start doing the change. And this notion is not really needed anymore. But I think there's the balance of giving people the training to do it. So you have the capacity to do it. Then the question is, how do you actually train that capacity so it can produce greater results more often? That's the other piece. And usually that's missed in empowerment is folks say, well, I empower you, but then they're not trained into how to actually leverage that empowerment to produce an outcome. So it's both a ability and a responsibility. If you can embrace both sides of it, you get an awful lot done. That's what I've seen over my career is folks would say, well, how did you get all that done? It's like, well, one, I believed I could, and then I went out and learned how to. And so believing you can and learning how to are the ways to actually get outcomes done. (laughs) I think humans have known that forever, but somehow organizations convince you you can't and you don't know and can't learn. So if you can just erase that conditioning, which says I can't and I don't know and I have to wait, The tagline on my book, right, is stop waiting, start driving the change you want. You can do it. Flipping the coin again. (laughs) Coin with many sides. Yeah, it's a very weird coin. (laughs) If everybody becomes a leader, what do we do then? So I've actually found that the more folks learn about how to create change in powerful ways with this notion of what is my competence, what is the business acumen to understand how I fit in the system, And how can I grow my change capabilities? You actually have leaders who are less trying to drive their own agendas and more trying to make the system better through their participation. So it's not about my idea winning, my solution winning, my team winning. It's about us winning, which a lot of times, and this again is a paradigm shift, is the most successful way to lead is to understand when to follow. And then to be willing to follow and support someone else. And that's usually the place leaders won't go. They'll they'll lead so long as they get to lead. But when it comes to leading by following, their worldview collapses and they're stuck and they drive organizations into chaos. That's that frontier of leadership. The more leaders you can create in an organization, they actually become true organizational leaders when they know when to follow. And that's that mark of true maturity versus just a lot of kings running around deciding their way is the right way. There is, again, a flip of a coin to this one. (laughs) I'm happy to keep flipping it. (laughs) So we all are trained to be picked, especially in big corporations. We have those leaders who are typically managers. They have the given power. And now we are waiting there trying for them to notice us and take us on their sheep. This is also a change that needs to happen. We should stop waiting for it. There's a lot of role models in history who drove changes because they knew they were the right thing to do and were tenacious about continuing with their idea until they were picked or actually 
declaring that it's not about you picking me. There's a great story of Colonel John Boyd, who created the concept of the OODA loop, observe, orient, decide, act. Lots of people in decision theory and leadership have heard of Colonel Boyd. And he had a great speech to his followers, which was probably less of a speech and more of a diatribe, right? He was angry with them one day. And he said, at some point in your career, you will be given the choice to be someone or to do something. And if you are selected to be someone, promoted, there will be some expectations of how you must behave in order to get that promotion, then how you must act once you get that promotion. And you will be someone. You will have a title. But that doesn't guarantee you will do something. And oftentimes in organizations, especially when the change necessary is counter to the status quo of the organization, in order to do something often means upsetting those people who have those titles and are in those comfortable places. So he challenged them to be ready for that choice. Will you be someone or will you do something? And it's the challenge each of us has to face is, do I challenge the status quo because I know the future could be better and I feel compelled to do it? Or do I go along to get the position and hope once I have the position, I'm still able to make the change? Most deep thinkers on organizations and leadership believe if you sacrifice to get the position, once you have it, you won't have the capacity and the tenacity to drive the change. Admiral Rickover, the founder of the nuclear Navy, feared that, and he talked about it as men because he was talking about Navy leaders at the time, which were almost exclusively men, men who waited for their moment to be that leader, by the time they got to be that senior leader, would have lost what he called their horizon of thought. And I think we see a lot of senior leaders who gave that up in order to climb. And our challenge outside or inside of organizations is not how do we replace those people who've lost their horizon of thought, but rather how do we help them expand back to that place where they had vision to and embrace a bigger vision that we can drive together. Because they have knowledge, they have experience, they were picked to be in those positions for a reason. I worry about organizations where junior members want to throw out all the old people so they can lead because there's knowledge and wisdom there, but it has to be partnered with a bigger horizon again. You said about the risk of annoying those in power when you want to lead change and question status quo. How to deal with the consequences of this? Because sometimes they can go to the extreme. You basically can get fired. Well, I think that's the change agent's dilemma, right? Which is everyone won't like you. There are different strategies you can use to have more people like you or appreciate you or understand you along the way. But if you think being a change agent involves everyone loving you, you're in the wrong area. So I think that that's the real opportunity for people as they are in jobs to understand how to not get stuck into one position to where, you know, one job or one person becomes what I need for my life to continue because you're sacrificing a lot of yourself for that safety, right? I mean, we see this in a lot of political conversations is what am I trading for the safety? Usually we trade a lot of freedom for safety. So it's how do you maintain a system where you can have your freedom to do powerful things, knowing that it might impede that safety. I find too often it's a funny inversion, which is the people that are most afraid of losing their jobs are usually the folks who can get a new job really fast, but have become so focused on the organization they're in, they forget that thinkers like them are actually the hardest thing to find. So training yourself to be a good change agent to where you've done your best and entrenched positions are attacking you is actually a really good test of your skills versus folks who just want to go and sort of brute force change everywhere and become a bully. Being a change agent, 
is not an easy job. Being a female change agent adds another layer of complexity to the situation. You've been this change agent for so many years. What are the struggles? What are the opportunities? What are the hidden weapons <laughs> that you can use to drive the change? Yeah, great question. I've actually found it's easier to be a woman and be a change agent, especially in a technology field or an engineering field, because you stand out and everyone expects you to be different anyway. So when you have a different idea, you don't have to fight past everybody assuming you're just like all the others. You're already different. So I've been in rooms where I was the only woman in a room of 40 people. So you can't help but be noticed. Now, noticed and heard are two very different things. But I've found you can leverage being noticed to be heard if you can direct your efforts towards understanding how does this room listen? What are the attributes of getting them to listen? And then how can I turn that listening into action? If you think of it like a puzzle, like a Rubik's Cube to solve, how can I flip the different sides to get the pattern to line up? It can become a game that you can play for how to actually leverage that platform. On the other side, too, though, there is always the aspect of not understanding some of the common patterns of how to communicate or how to connect or how to frame an idea. So I found one of the good techniques is to partner up with somebody who's part of the status quo, but knows there's probably a different way because they can then translate for you some of the habits or behaviors or thinking so that you can get a better understanding of what's going on more often in everyone else's head. So I would go to those folks and say, help me understand why in this situation this happened and have them teach me to see. So I found that very helpful. The other thing is, is partner up with the other women who are in that environment to be that strong personal buffer while you're going through change. Everybody needs the person to get coffee with to when you share about your day, they go, you're doing the right thing. They're all crazy and <laughs> <laughs> give you confidence to try again the next day. I have a feeling that those last two advices are actually universal. They are not gender specific at all. Probably not. I guess it just depends on how do you how do you create a way where you're seen as something different? Some of us can't help. We can't blend in, right? We can try. I've seen women actually try to blend into the status quo and they can blend in 90% of the way, but it's still and and we've got one woman over here. For those of us who are going to stand out no matter what, we might as well just embrace it a little bit more, regardless of what it is, right? If you're the only person from a different country on a team, if you're, it's more about whatever my difference is that I'm, I don't want to ever get rid of. If I can leverage that to bring a different perspective and I win. What are the weak points of women in the roles of change agents? One of the, one of the struggles is you're always going to have an aspect of folks assuming more about you than maybe they would have of others. So I'll give a simple example that we see pretty often, at least in the U.S., which is the assumption of a woman who's a mother, you're more often to get questions around where are your children while you're trying to do your work than a man is. People rarely walk up to a man and say, oh my goodness, you're at work, where are your children? But the amount of times a woman hears that every week, if I had a quarter for every time somebody asked me that, I'd be rich. So you, you do have extra challenges of getting people to focus more on your change and less on your circumstances. So that, I think, is one of the real challenges is how do you both be a full person and get people to focus on the work, not on too much about the person. And that happens whether it's women or men in different situations or whatever else. People get distracted by personality instead of the work. People just want to talk about the difference instead of what's the same. There are so many great books out there. Is there a particular book that you would like to recommend? Oh, goodness. To ask me about a favorite book is like to ask me to pick a favorite child. You know, <laughs> I love books. 
I'll bring up one that it's not a modern book about change, and it's not specifically around change. It just tells a change story, which is Theodore Rockwell's The Rickover Effect. He wrote it about Admiral Rickover and creating the nuclear navy. Why I think it's such a fascinating book is because it shows you the mind and the planning of somebody who was one of the world's best change agents, best engineers and best change agents. With a small team, they went from approval to put a nuclear power plant in a submarine to the USS Nautilus underway in five years. They designed the reactor. They had to create an entire industry to build the components. They had to change metallurgy so they could have metals that could perform to their standards. They had to train the sailors as well as the maintenance crews on how to maintain it, build it, and launch it all in five years. It's an engineering marvel, an organizational marvel. And the organization sustains an unblemished record of safety for 70 years since. So I think it's a powerful story that a lot of people miss. And it's in part because Rickover intentionally did not lay down anything as recipes. He didn't tell you how to do what he was doing. He just did it. Andy Grove's book, High Output Management, Only the Paranoid Survive. Andy wrote more about here's what you should do and why you should do it. So closer to recipes. But both are a glimpse at geniuses working out how to interact with the world. So I find those really fascinating. So the very last question, what is your motto in life? I have a little one that I carry around in my pencil case. Uh, it's a little line which says, the vision is worth pursuing and no one knows how to do it yet. So it keeps me experimenting every day. I believe in the change agent's motto, which is do what you can with what you have where you are. And then I have a little card that's over my mirror that I wrote a few years ago, which says, God has a plan for you today that only you can accomplish. So go out and get it done. April, thank you so very much for this conversation. It was great. Thank you. It was great to be here with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. You can do it.